Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger. Thank you for joining us. My guest this week is Chanel Reynolds, the author of the book, What Matters Most? The Get Your Shit Together Guide to Wills, Money, Insurance, and Life's What Ifs. Now, while this might sound like a very dry book about estate planning, it is not. Chanel's journey to helping others with their financial lives began with a brutal accident that killed her husband, leaving her to not only grieve and raise their son alone, but to negotiate the bureaucratic thicket of living wills, life insurance, computer passwords, and much, much more at the time in life when that was the last thing she wanted to deal with. When I heard about Chanel and the book that she was releasing, I thought, well, this this is kind of interesting. This is about money and our relationship to money, and we're all going to have to deal with these kinds of things sooner or later in life, hopefully much, much later, and hopefully under much better circumstances. And I really wasn't looking forward to reading the book because, well, death is scary and estate planning and insurance, well, you know, it's not the most exciting stuff in the world. But let me assure you that Chanel can really write. The story is gripping. It's sad. It's surprisingly funny because of how honest she is. And I really enjoyed reading it. I also enjoyed this conversation a whole lot. Chanel is a tour de force, a paragon of strength and resilience, and I officially declare her a badass, and this book is proof. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chanel Reynolds. When you're just trying to make it through the day, and then you have to spend two hours on the phone with your cell phone company, trying to get your phone turned back on because it was in your late husband's name and they won't give you the information you need. It made me want to like literally shoot lasers out of my eyes and <laughs> burn buildings down. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Welcome to the Crazy Money Podcast. This is Paul Ollinger. My guest is Chanel Reynolds, the author of the new book, What Matters Most, the Get Your Shit Together Guide to Wills money, insurance, and life's what-ifs. Chanel, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the time to be here. So this book is part of a very long and arduous journey that you've been on. Will you take us back to July 2009 and tell us about what happened and how you got started on this journey? Yeah. So July 17, 2009 was a regular day with, you know, a kid in preschool and two parents with jobs and you're picking up and I'm dropping off and I'm going to this barbecue and you'll meet me later. And um, I was over at a friend's house and I picked up my phone, which was in my purse to take a picture of my son and noticed that I had dozens of missed calls and voicemails from numbers I didn't recognize. And I thought that was weird, and I was about to just drop my phone back in my purse, but it seemed weird enough. And so the first voicemail was from a neighbor saying, people are trying to get a hold of you, and it sounded frantic, and I didn't know. And I listened to a couple more, and it was basically my late husband, Jose, had been in a terrible accident. It was bad, and they took him to the hospital, and I didn't know if he was alive or not, but I 
could tell from the sound of the voices that it was really bad. So I left my son at my friend's house and said he was having a surprise sleepover and got in the car and drove, you know, first of all, calling around to see what hospital he was at and realizing he was at the the trauma hospital, you know, the one that the helicopters land on. I made it there hoping that he was still alive and the ER doc had said that there was basically a 50-50 chance. And I thought that that was better than dead. So I was, you know, saying, okay, there's a 50-50 chance he can wake up, he'll walk again, everything will be fine. You know, we can finish our swing dance lessons. Like 50-50 was so hopeful at that point. And the ER doc had said, no, Chanel, the paramedics thought that he was a DOA. If, if we can get him stable enough to get him into surgery, there's a 50-50 chance he'll make it off the table. That was when I realized that the life that we had was over, no matter what happened next. And whatever happened next, there were two paths, and I felt completely unprepared for, for either of them. And the two paths were Jose dying or Jose being incapacitated for as long as he may live. Yeah, the, the paths were he would die, you know, in a second or that his injuries, when I, when I got to the hospital, he was on a ventilator and there were all these tubes going in and out. I feel like I'm a reasonably functioning person, but I don't have medical experience. So when they're holding up x-rays with pictures of his spine and saying C1 through 4, I knew that it was very, very bad. And if he did make it, you know, either his brain or his body or both would probably, it would be a years long recovery. And, you know, our lives would probably never look the same. We were talking most likely about paralysis or, or who even knows. So, so yeah, I, and, and from that point forward, there was just a big confusion and grief and worry. And I was trying to stay in my body and be present and listen to what the doctors were saying. And then in addition to that, there were these questions that were coming like, where's your insurance card? And do you guys have your affairs in order? And what kind of insurance do you have? Is your son in a place? And what's the password to his phone? And so in addition to just trying to figure out what the hell was happening with my life and if Jose would be okay, there were a lot of questions that I didn't have any answers to. And having some answers then, even like the password to his phone, so I could get in and call some of his members of his family, like that would have been just one less thing I had to worry about during a unimaginably terrible time. In one point in the book, you say you're standing next to your comatose husband's bed and you realize it dawned on you, I don't have my shit together. Yeah, exactly. Those those were the words that I said. And we'd been there for about a day or two. He, you know, had made it through the night. He was still alive. And one of the hospital staff had asked me if we had our affairs in order. And, you know, if we'd done our wills and our living wills, because it would be easier to make decisions. And I said, we did. And then as I was walking back into the room, I realized that we, we had done them, but we didn't actually finish them. We didn't print them out and sign them. You know, they were sitting in my inbox waiting to be signed and had been for months. Oh. And, and so I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant 
what was probate? What would happen if he died? Would I still be able to make medical decisions for him? How does any of that work? Because it's just this big legal question. And what I knew about estate planning and end of life legal battles was that they're not good at all. So I did realize, you know, walking into the room that I didn't have my shit together at all. And not only was I standing there, you know, with a thousand questions and answers to only half of them, there were a lot of other people in the ER and the ICU who, who, you know, they had no visitors or they had families sleeping in the lobby. And, you know, if this was happening to us, then, then, and, and it was also happening to all these other people. And I felt like at the worst possible moment of my life, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I at least had some medical insurance to cover the bills and some life insurance in case he died and friends and family who were there, you know, bringing sandwiches and making sure that my son was taken care of. So it was this gigantic moment where I realized that I was so much more vulnerable and kind of screwed, frankly, than I had ever realized. And it wasn't just me. It felt like everybody in the world, you know, were just kind of waiting for one accident or illness to just knock everything sideways. So I want to get to why that may be, but before we get there, you were in an unimaginable or imaginable, but not anything anybody ever wants to imagine kind of circumstance. And you saw two paths that Jose may go down. He ended up dying a week after the accident, correct? Yes. A week after the accident, well, halfway through that week in the hospital, we had been waiting for all of the different tests to come in and they right. all said the same thing that his injuries were were unrecoverable and so i decided to remove medical support because there was going to be no scenario where he was going to ever wake up and I, had you yeah. and jose ever dis- discussed that prior to, to to the accident you know we had when we when we drafted the legal documents there, there were three basic ones that we did that most people do. It's your will, which is mostly your, you know, your stuff and guardianship for your kids or your pets, and a power of attorney, which is you know who gets to make decisions for you. But a living will is the one where you make the end of life decisions, and so we filled it out. But I don't think that we really, really sat down and discussed you know what quality of life means for you and how much better would you need to get? And how would you feel living for the rest of your life on a ventilator? Or how much does mobility mean to you? And so our situation, given, you know, it was unanimous, all the tests said that he, he would not ever recover. There were, there were subtleties that I, I didn't know. And, you know, as a lot of people start to face these end of life issues, you know, with aging parents or terminal illnesses, I didn't have all of the details I would have wanted about what was his line and what would it look like had we crossed it. And so I, you know, it's that other thing where it was 50, 50, whether he would make it or not. When I arrived, I felt very 50, 50, like I had 50% of the stuff covered or done, which was wildly helpful. Um, And then the 50% of the things I didn't have from enough life insurance to any disability insurance to, a password to his phone, that stuff made me crazy. You know, talk about crazy money. It made me crazy because <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have the answers. I didn't know at least where I stood. And I had to often spend hours or dozens of hours on the phone 
trying to hunt stuff down when, you know, I really just wanted to try to read a story to my son at night and, you know, like putting on pants was a good day for a <laughs> while, right? Like it was, yeah. it's hard to go through something like that. And people, people do all the time. You have to. So the lack of preparation compounded your grief and anxiety around what would be seemingly impossible under the best of circumstances. Yeah, I would say, you know, that I, I've thought a lot about this and people have said, did it, did it make it worse? And if it's a yes or no question, then my answer is, yeah, it made it worse. I started to think about this in just terms of like scale of suffering. There was no way I was going to be able to get around or not experience the intense grief and sorrow and loss. And, and we, you know, we still do the kids still don't have a dad and it still sucks sometimes, but that kind of suffering, that human experience suffering is something we just can't get away from or out of, but all of the additional, what I started to call optional suffering was the stuff that could have made, you know, like that when the ground got ripped out from underneath me, it could have made the, the, the crash landing feel perhaps a little bit softer. So it made it harder, I would say for sure, because when you're just trying to make it through the day and then you have to spend two hours on the phone with your cell phone company, trying to get your phone turned back on because it was in your late husband's name and they won't give you the information you need. Like, Oh, wow. It kind of, and that's just one of the many phone calls I had to make. It made me want to like literally shoot lasers out of my eyes and <laughs> burn buildings down. It was, you know, it's often the thing that, you know, just would put me over the edge for the day. And if I made one or two of those phone calls in a week, that felt like progress. So let me ask you a question that might not seem fair, but why didn't you have your shit together? You were professional, educated informed human being what was it that kept you from having your shit together oh this this is the million dollar question right so i smacked myself so many times in the forehead there was probably a permanent bruise for like the first year after he died but a couple of things well i realized a, a number of things one is that half of america doesn't have their wills together or done you know most of us can't remember our own password to our Netflix or Dropbox account, much less what our username and password is to the 401k or the bank account we haven't logged into in two years. So on the one hand, yeah, it really sucked that I didn't have my shit more together, especially as a college-educated project manager for the love of everything holy, I would say to myself. Most of us don't. And I think that it's hard because there doesn't seem to be immediate urgency every day, even though it's not urgent, but it's really, really important. I just hadn't thought through those what if scenarios, right? Like what is what were the most common things that could have turned our life sideways? And honestly, my late husband getting hit by a van probably wasn't at the top of the list of things that were most likely to happen. But, you know, if we had an earthquake, if, you know, I couldn't get across town to pick up my son or one of us got sick and couldn't work. We were a two-income family 
living in a two-income mortgage home, and we didn't have a lot of backup plans. So it was definitely hard to just accept the fact that we, you know, we hadn't gotten some stuff right, and there were some really serious consequences and serious financial consequences because of that. But really quickly, you know, even at the hospital or at the funeral or certainly in the weeks and months after he died, so many friends and family members would come up to me and say, you know, oh my God, we don't have any of this stuff done either. They didn't have wills. Some didn't have life insurance. Some hadn't, you know, looked into disability or, or whatever their personal specific situation was. So many of us don't. And so while it's scary to realize that so many people in my community were as vulnerable as, as I was, it made me feel somewhat better that this is like a larger problem on a big scale and there's some kind of organizational failure around why we don't. And so um, it kind of made me, it made me feel a little bit better, or perhaps I should say a little less ashamed that I wasn't the only one in, in that boat. A lot of other people were too, and we could probably fix that. Yeah. You were married to Jose for how long? We were married for nine years. So nine years and you weren't snooping through his phone, thus necessitating <laughs> you knowing his phone number. That's pretty good. Well, we weren't the phone snooping type. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we'd we met when we were in our mid-20s and it, it took us a little while to kind of get it right or be ready to be married. But, but when we were, um, no, I didn't. And he also had a work phone. And so probably some of those files on his phone were sensitive. I did have the username and password to get into his laptop. I didn't have some of the information to get into the photo cloud storage account. So we'd started to try to get stuff figured out and do the adult things, especially when you, we have negative triggers in our life when someone we know, or when we get a diagnosis or go through a really hard time, but the kind of regular or positive triggers are buying a house or getting married or having a kid. So there are these kind of, you know, just like life moments scheduled in for when people start to think a little more seriously about the stuff, even tax time. It's kind of hard to go through all of your money and not think, wow, I could, <laughs> I could get my shit together a little bit more around an emergency savings or retirement plan. But no, I, I didn't have some of his stuff. And it certainly isn't because we had a perfect marriage, but you know, we had a successful one. Um, and even so we, we missed things. And so you've created a mission around helping people get their shit together. But before we dive into that, I'd really like to talk about some of the money focused experiences that you had to figure out on your own as a young widow, including you'd mentioned before having a two income house with one income, all of a sudden not having enough life insurance. Can you walk us through how you sort of dealt with those issues one at a time? Mm -hmm. Well, the first big thing I realized money-wise was we did not have a big emergency fund. We'd had one, but we'd kind of been slowly dipping into it over the, over the last few years before the accident because we had a kid in preschool. We just bought a bigger home. None of the decisions we made individually were necessarily bad decisions, but incrementally and on a cumulative level, we made a lot of small things that added up to not being ready if something were to happen. And so just knowing that 
Jose probably didn't have time to deposit his check before mm. he got in his accident might have meant that while we were at the hospital, we might have been bouncing checks. I knew there was a tuition payment coming up. And so just knowing, I mean, there was nothing I could do about it then, but it added to the fact that for me feeling like everything was uncertain, the consequences of not having an emergency fund that was healthy enough to cover me for you know, a few weeks or a few months or the six or more months that people you know, financial planners recommend meant that I was really stressed about money when I otherwise could have just hit the pause button and known that we'd be fine for a little while and I didn't have to think about it. So the emergency fund, not having one kind of sucked. I would also say that our, our insurance situation, we weren't super on top of it. As I said, we had some life insurance, but we hadn't updated it in five years. And in that time, we'd gotten a much bigger house and our life had changed and our expenses had changed. So having some life insurance, you know, really saved my butt and kind of, uh, yep. I would say, I would yeah. say it, it offered me a, a bridge from the old life to the new one rather than a crash land, you're broke and you'll probably go bankrupt and lose the house right away. Disability insurance, you know, long-term and short-term disability is super expensive. And the reason why is because you're more likely to need to use it. We didn't have any, and as a freelancer, then it probably cost you know three hundred dollars a month or something like that to have some disability insurance, and and so without without that kind of income replacement, which is what people will call that, it meant that our lives looked one way one day, and then the next day a hundred percent different. And then you know some of the consequences, I would say, for not having our wills finalized is that I had to or chose to hire an attorney to help navigate that probate process because I couldn't even look at the website to figure out what probate was and if I had to call someone. So things ended up just costing me a lot of money, even you know funeral expenses. The average funeral in the U.S. is $8,000. And if folks can't come up with $400 cash in an emergency, most people don't have $8,000 laying around to plop down right away for funeral expenses. And so there was a finance funeral. Yeah, I'm sure you could put it on your credit card or they'd figure it out, but when you're when you're thinking about, you know, how all of this adds up, much less that you're emotionally just at rock bottom. And following up on all of these phone calls and probate and calling social security and, you know, all these things, it, it's kind of a full-time job for weeks and weeks and weeks, even when everything's going fine and, you know, an insurance company denies a x-ray claim or something. I mean, most of us have experienced that's like four hours on the phone and that's when everything's <laughs> oh, yeah. fine, much less your whole life is over and you have to figure out calling the mortgage company and asking them if they can put your payments on hold for a while because you don't have any money right now. It was pretty otherworldly. I would say that knowing that the life insurance check was coming helped me feel like, you know, there was kind of a, a, a buffer on the way, but it takes four or six or eight weeks sometimes for that to come. And, 
you know, again, as we, I mean, even with the government shutdown and we had hundreds of thousands of government employees, you know, running quickly out of money, most, most people don't have a month or two months worth of savings just to kind of float your situation for a while. And it, it added to the pile of things that I had to worry about. Absolutely. Including as a freelancer, how much to work in the weeks and months after your husband's death. Right. I mean, my gut was I need to go back to work right away because I have no idea how screwed I am. But what I really felt that I needed was some time. And even in the hospital, in that, you know, storm of I don't have my shit together, a friend had asked, what do you what do you need? And out of my mouth before, you know, even knowing the words had formed was, you know, I need a year. And at the time that felt like a ridiculously luxurious thing to say is I needed a year off from work. But since then, I've many people have reminded me that you know, in many countries, you get a, a year of paid leave for having a baby, much less losing a husband. So having a year off when your life changes completely isn't necessarily being pampered. But yeah, so I, I decided that what I would use the money for from the insurance money was to prioritize sanity, maybe perhaps sanity <laughs> over security, because I just lived through the fact that you can try to organize yourself as well or as mediocrely well as possible. And there there isn't a lot of security. So it felt like my job for the next year was try to get through that year, keeping myself and my my kids intact as much as possible. And a lot of stuff happened. You ended up selling your house. You ended up giving away many of your possessions. Walk us through how you came to those decisions. There were kind of these, you know, like timelines in that first year in my head. You know, there's this uh, kind of just standard advice floating out there that you shouldn't make any big decisions in the first year. And while I don't necessarily disagree with the the sentiment. I don't think that that's also really possible for a lot of folks. I decided that I was going to just suck it up and have essentially a high burn rate for a year so my kid could go to the school he was going to. He wouldn't have to change homes and we would have to pay for a lot of therapy. Like that's where some of the life insurance went. Right. I also saved up. I used some of that and put it away in an emergency fund that doesn't get touched. I also got more insurance, you know, for it seems weird to get a life insurance check from your husband dying and then using it to buy more insurance. But for a few years, I really needed to feel like if anything happened to me, the kids would be well, well, well covered. So a lot happened. And the first six weeks were kind of getting to the new school year and getting the kids back into school. And I hoped that that would make me feel like there was a routine in place and that things might settle down a little bit, but it didn't. It didn't. It didn't make me feel better. But that first year, I, um, I I did wait before I decided to sell the house. And when I did, it was during a economic downturn, and so I, I did sell the house for a loss. But at that point, when when everything kind of had been ripped away, it seemed like you know just resetting everything the way it needed to look for the future was probably the smartest way to go. And if that meant selling the house for a little, you know, for a bit of a loss then, and just kind of taking the punch in the gut rather than slow bleeding for a number of years longer, that that was the right thing, the right thing to do, or actually, you know, 
I, I worried that it wasn't the right thing to do and down the road I'd regret it. But at, at that time, we make decisions based on the information we have and what's most important then. And I, I needed to kind of be thinking about what our life should look like moving forward. The pruning of possessions, was that a catharsis? Was that a coping mechanism? What were you, what was going on with you when you decided to do that? The stuff is a hard one. I'll say, you know, for, for a while, I want, everything was left the same and our closet had his sweaters and I didn't touch his sock drawer and all of that stuff because it just felt not so much like I wanted to preserve or make a museum out of it. But when you're, when someone you're close to leaves like that, the, the presence stays for a while. So I didn't know what to, to do with all the stuff. I did know that I didn't want to find myself in a spot where I was just kind of making more of those really small, incrementally bad decisions. You know, there were some big purchases we'd made, like a nice coffee maker that I I will throw myself on the good coffee maker grenade for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's a good choice. Um, that's, it's, thank that's, you. They're, you know, priorities, right? There are financial well, priorities. Well done. Thank you. Of course. But, but we also didn't need, I mean, we also just had stuff, right? Like, why did we have so many, like, garden supplies? We didn't really garden that much. And did we really need to get takeout as much as we did? And, and so there was just stuff in the house. And I thought about putting it up online and selling you know, the remnants of our former life for 20 bucks a pop. But the thought of that just was so exhausting. It made me want to take a nap. And then I also was thinking, I'm a single mom. Why am I inviting strangers over to come dig through my stuff? Like that did not necessarily make me feel safe either. So I did a giveaway in the, the spirit of us as individuals and consumers not buying more crap. You know, we had this articulated ladder that I knew somebody would want and a lawnmower that someone would need. So I posted a bunch of pictures of stuff on Facebook and I said, who wants this? And people were like, oh my God, me, I love that. My deal was, I probably won't ever want this back, but you can have it for free under the condition that if I want it back, you have to give it to me. And Have you, have you asked for anything back? I haven't. You know, I also don't live in a place where I need a two-story ladder, but it's amazing how much we we can get away with not having, right? Well, certainly what you've gone through, um, it must have set everything back into perspective pretty harshly. It did. It really, it really, really did. And, you know, there were an, a number of ways in which I feel like I came out. I mean, first of all, this type of experience changes people, even if it's not an immediate catastrophic loss where someone's literally run down in the middle of the road, you know, losing a parent, even after they've lived a long, joyful life is, is a loss that stays with people for a long time. And so I have thought differently about what's important and what kind of things I would prioritize. And, you know, the, the funny thing is on the money front, I still go shopping a lot, but the difference is I don't go buying. I go shopping, but I don't <laughs> buy stuff, <laughs> which is really... Blue. It's really different. I am. And, you know, online shopping has reinvented shopping for me. You know, like you can shop online and abandon your shopping cart 
as many yeah. times as you want. I do that in stores now, and it's kind of awesome. But then they re- <laughs> then they re- they retarget you with ads because they know you've got a shopping cart with stuff in it. They want you to come well, back to finish the transaction. That's true, but I would say you know the consequence of unsubscribing from some lists versus getting deep into credit card debt. I'll I'll take the spam over yeah. a, 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 a dunking credit score for sure. There was a lot of stuff, but it's only a few boxes I've kept specifically for the kids. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff for sure. So eventually you were inspired to start a website called GYST. And if you haven't figured it out, folks, that's getyourshittogether.com. How did that come about? All by accident really is the way I'll I'll start that. From those very first days in the hospital and having that moment where it really struck me how much I didn't have my shit together. And in the weeks afterwards, knowing and seeing all of my friends and family members struggling with the same stuff, it took me a couple of years, but I, I learned a lot. You know, I learned how to prioritize the urgent stuff, which would be the things that impact your credit versus the important stuff, but you can put some things, you can put payments off for a few weeks or more, calling somebody and asking for more time, you know, half the time that works. I started to realize that it's not actually hard to do it ahead of time. We just don't do it. So I first launched a little small personal website in 2013 on getyourshittogether.org, which is now my personal website. And that was a 10 page website with basically, Hey, here's the stuff I wish I would have done. And by the way, here's a budget spreadsheet that I use and here's what my wills look like. Mm. So download it and, and read it. So you can familiarize yourself with it. And it's honestly a four or five page document. It doesn't have your social security number in it or anything super private anyway. Right. And when you look at it, you're like, Oh, that's not, that doesn't look so hard. So when I launched that in 2013, I sent it out over Facebook to friends and family. And overnight, literally while I was sleeping, it had spread out so far, the New York Times called me the next day and asked if they could come out and write about it. And so I launched the site on a Monday. And by that weekend, it was the most shared and most read story for the whole weekend. So not only clearly did it seem like me and my community of people were having a hard time with this stuff, but everybody else's too. What was it like? What was going through your head when the New York Times and Tina Brown and called you and then you're, you're melting servers with the traffic? Did you feel <laughs> happy, happy, vindicated, scared? What was that experience like? All of the above. I, I was thrilled that you know something I made was making a difference and was resonating with people. I felt proud and it was a good feeling like my instincts were right. We do want to talk about this stuff and it's not that hard. We just haven't been, people aren't giving us the information in the right way. In the personal finance world, it's all finance and almost never personal. And so I think I was trying to bridge that gap. And then it was also, to be totally honest, really, 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 really overwhelming. And I had (laughs) (laughs) really overwhelming. Oh my God, this is actually good what I made. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. And then I found myself talking about my dead husband a lot, and I don't think I was really ready for that. And the thing that I, I think felt like like an extra a weight at that time was I started to get um, emails from all over the country, actually all over the world, from people who 
uh, were in the same boat as I had been. And when I launched the website, it had been a few years after he had died. And a lot of it was like, here's the stuff I wish I would have done so you can be prepared. What I hadn't really thought about was half of the world's out there not prepared. And when something happens, they don't know what to do the same way I didn't know what to do. You know, I would Google, what do you do when someone dies? And I would get not a lot of very good results. When a number of people heard about the website and reached out to me saying, you know, me too, I live in Virginia and my sister or mother or somebody is in the hospital, what should I do? Or I live here or I live in Hawaii and someone's trying to sue me over probate court, what should I do? And so on the one hand, I was like, yay me, I did this thing that's helpful. And then on the other hand, I was like, oh God, what? <laughs> I don't know how to, I forgot I, or I, I wasn't thinking about all of the people who were in a world of hurt right then, just like I had been. And the website I made didn't answer their questions. And I was just one person and I didn't know what probate court in Hawaii looked like. And I didn't know what medical laws were in Virginia. So from that point forward, I had been thinking about this book and that if I was really going to tell the story of what you should do to be better prepared, I had to or wanted to tell the story of everything I had to after and what I might have been able to do then. So I even knew what the hell I was supposed to do before. So the book was a way for me to really get into all of the personal stuff about not just personal finance, but, you know, grief and loss and parenting and, and sure. what do you do when you don't know what to do? So then in 2015, I launched a new version of the website at just.com because it felt like this book is a great way for me to tell my story and, you know, the personal side, but, but folks really want uh, a resource that can get them at least feeling a little less overwhelmed and pointed in the right direction. And so that's what just.com is supposed to do is offer a inviting to as many people as possible way to find some state by state resources or read some reviews or just mm -hmm. figure out what the difference between a will and a living will is so they can get started and feel maybe a little less scared and vulnerable and unsure of, of what to do next. I read about you in an article that Ron Lieber wrote, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago, maybe. And Ron's been a guest on this show. I was intrigued by your story because I do want to tell the personal side of personal finance. I want to talk about how money affects our relationships and how our experiences affect our relationship with money. And certainly this is one I hadn't thought about. And I was like, I really want to have that conversation. I want to learn from it. And when I read about your book, I was like, I'm probably going to skim through this. She's going to tell me what a will is and all that kind of stuff. But when I started reading it, it's kind of two books in one. It's like, it's a narrative about loss, unimaginable loss, and how you made your way through it, including real details about how you dealt with being a single mom all of a sudden. And it was really gripping and courageous, I thought. Uh, I also like the Frank language because it's written in a way that makes it very readable and, and relatable. And even though, you know, I wasn't always, I wasn't thinking about the estate planning part of it, the life insurance part of it. I realized that even with a lot of help, we have financial advisors, we have a lot of help. I don't have all my shit together either. And 
I didn't know where my, we had a living will. I didn't know where it was. Mm-hmm. We have, I, I, I don't think we have a digital power of attorney. I've got to follow up and figure out if we've done that. I know I have powers of attorney, but they're sitting, you know, they're sitting with our financial advisors and they're not exactly where I know I can get them when I need them right away. You also mentioned some things that I didn't have an in case of emergency app on my phone. And perhaps most importantly for some people, unless this is just a Seattle thing, you got to hide your sex toys, people. (laughs) Well, I mean, I believe that the sex industry or the sex toy and porn industry is a multi hundreds of million dollar industry a year. So if Seattle's the only one that has it, then there are <laughs> mountains of sex toys and people. That's have. right. Well, <laughs> per capita, per capita expense on sex toys in the Seattle greater Puget Sound area exceeds <laughs> that of the rest of the country by a hundred X. In fairness, I would say that my sex toys are more crumbs in my browser history than they are actual <laughs> physical objects. The point is well taken. And there's surely a few people out there with some edibles in their sock drawer that may need to be disposed of. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I thought the book was really a good read and also a very practical one because even people who think they have their shit together probably don't have all the boxes checked that they should. Well, first of all, thank you. I want to say thank you for that. And um, I appreciate that. Anytime I can write a book that personal finance experts find something new in, like it's a wonderful thing to hear. But yeah, I mean, so many of the things have money consequences, but I think when we start with the documents or the tasks or the optimizing or maximizing or mitigating, we forget that it's really about the people in your lives and what's important and what your life looks like. And so all of these passwords I did or didn't have, legal documents that were signed or not, you know, insurance that we had enough of or not, it all rolls up into financial impact. But, you know, life insurance or disability insurance isn't just income replacement. It's, oh God, your life as you knew it is over. And what are you going to do about that now? So I do think it's, if we start from your own world, you know, from inside your own head and kind of move out forward to what are the things that you need that are going to help you get to where you want or feel secure that you have, you know, if something happens a year off, or 10 years or 20, it just feels like that's a more human way to go about talking about this stuff. And now there's this digital power of attorney, things change. In addition to not wanting some things found part, which would be the edibles or the sec toys or your whatever that might be. My unfinished novel. More, your unfinished more novel. Exactly. Well, I know I was actually speaking with Gabby Dunn, who wrote sure. and talks about being bad with money. And she was joking with me that, you know, part of her written instructions now is smash my phone and my computer into a million pieces. <laughs> Which, so sure. I mean, there's things you don't want found, but that really came from the place first for me, which was the things that you can never find, right? Like what if Jose had been one of the first groups of people who bought Bitcoin and I wouldn't know the difference, <laughs> oh, right? right? Yeah. Like what what is might be out there that that i never found i mean i'd much rather find the sex toys and have the bitcoin and the bitcoin (laughs) right yeah but uh you know bitcoin eases the pain of the sex toys no matter what they may be right right i mean if if he had bought bitcoin i could have flown us down to do this interview you know with matching helicopters somewhere but that's right that's right you never know 
You never know. Are you making a living from the work that you're doing along these lines now? It's been a little bit of both, I'll say. When I first launched the website and there was a lot of you know, press and attention and interest, there were some opportunities to kind of dig into this full time. And just as how I was kind of overwhelmed and, and conflicted about that, some of that for me was, you know, how much do I want to make talking about my dead husband, my profession moving forward for the rest of my life? And Right. Um, but the answer has been kind of half and half. I love working with people and I'm a collaborative person and I love making things and showing them to people. Um, writing this book has, has been a, a huge accomplishment for me being, you know, not only an ADHD person who has a thousand projects that are unfinished, but an extrovert who really doesn't want to sit in a room by herself for 12 hours a day writing stuff. That. Um, it's, it, it was hard to do, but um, I'm really pleased that nine, nearly 10 years after the accident, that, um, that I, I think I found a way to, to be able to keep Jose with us in our lives and our family's lives, but be able to do it in a way that is very forward looking for me and is less attached perhaps to the grief or the immediate grief and more attached mm -hmm. to I learned some things and it turns out they've been helpful to people. And so I feel like I, I can do this and should do this and you know, almost have a, a responsibility to do this. And I like going out and talking to people. So, so moving forward, this may not be the only thing I do full-time forever, but for right now it's working and I want to keep doing it. That's great. You give lots of advice around how to, how to be a good friend when someone loses a loved one, how to avoid platitudes. And that's a whole other podcast on its own. You outline a lot of ways to, for logistical and legal planning for death. Do you think there's any way to prepare emotionally for the death of a loved one, the unexpected death of a loved one? Mm, yeah. You know, many, many, many people I've talked to, I'll say it always feels like a surprise and it always feels like it's too soon. In fact, I wrote about kind of one of my more humiliating moments when I essentially failed grief group because it was me and mostly a bunch of other people who had lost someone to cancer, which when I was so fresh and new in my loss, I was actually envious of the fact that they had cancer and didn't get run over with the van and, and had time. Like the thing that I felt like I didn't have was that time to say goodbye of course, I was not thinking rationally, and and um, loss is is loss, and it, it feels for most people I've talked to almost always like a surprise and too soon. I do think that talking about it, however, may not make you feel less afraid of what happens, but it can make you perhaps a little more comfortable with it. At the very least, if you have a plan, you know, and I'm not suggesting that having a plan makes you feel any less terrible when something happens, but having talked about it and having a plan, even if you change the whole plan, you're like, yep, well, this is what we said we're going to do, but now we're going to think about it differently. Having at least thought about it a couple of times means that you're not thinking about it for the very first time. And I found that to make it just a little bit easier when you're not when when you're not trying to make sense of everything and it's a whole new thing you've never thought about before. You know, having 
the conversation about quality of life now. I mean, if you think about it, we're all really on a quality of life plan. It's just some are a lot longer than others. It's ended up really having a positive impact on my relationships with people, even, you know, conversations with my son. You know, in fact, now that he's 15 and a freshman in high school and not a little squishy five-year-old, you know, I I can't hug him in public anymore, that kind of thing, <laughs> which, you know, I'll, I'll still try, but it's, it's not, it's just not in the cards. You know, we've talked for a long time about what happens if you die. And frequently, if kids will say, hey, mom or dad, or what happens if you die? Often the answer is, oh, sweetie, I'm not going to die. Well, we know that's not true. And I don't think the kids or any of us are asking for you to lie to them and say you won't die because we know that's not actually true either. I'll say, well, remember we talked about it. Your grandma and your grandpa will come move and they'll live out here and you'll stay in this house and I've got your college money and all of this stuff is set up for you. And he says, okay. So it's it's not, I mean, our family has lived through a loss, so everybody else might not be as comfortable talking about it, given that we we had to, we were forced to. But from so many people who I've talked to who do talk about it, when it feels still like a surprise or still too soon or still devastating and sad, at the very least, it's not the first time you would have to kind of reckon with or, or wrestle with the idea that everything isn't permanent and these people who you love or hate <laughs> are, are not going to be around forever. So if, if there's something, if today really was the last day, would, would you do something differently about that? And sometimes the answer is yes. And I think that that makes a difference. Having gone through what you've gone through, do you care about money more or less? That's a good question. And I'm going to say nobody has ever asked me that before. So thank you. I think of money more seriously and that it's important. I would say it's maybe more important in some ways, but I do think about it very differently in the fact that it's, it's more of an energetic exchange for me. Sue Zorman with the pay yourself first. That's pretty good advice that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And so I do have an emergency fund set aside. I do take my retirement seriously because as a woman who gets paid less, who saves less for retirement, you know, the math is not on my side to begin with. And mm -hmm. it continues to not be so as, as, I, as I get older. But I don't think of money as something to attain. I think of it as something that, that provides options and, and can help allow you to have the life that you want to have. I don't feel held hostage to the idea of money anymore. I don't feel afraid of it anymore. That's great. I mean, I don't have enough of it <laughs> and I'd like more. <laughs> so there's that. Um, it's, I'm, you know, wealth nope. management is not a concern of mine right now. Let's be clear. It's not like, no, money's fine. Everything's great. But right. um, I do think about it much more practically, almost like food, right? Like there's a certain amount of food you have to put in your body. And sometimes you make really good choices and sometimes you make good enough choices. But, but yeah, it's, it's different. So Chanel, is there anything else you want to talk about for this interview before we finish up? Well, I mean, the, talking about all this stuff 
with the umbrella of it being about money has always felt conflicted for me, right? Because a little bit, because money, you know, money has just got such dirty energy about it in so many ways, right? Like talking about the devastating grief and loss of my husband and my kid's father, not to mention the fact that he died. He's the one who doesn't get to be here anymore, not watching his kids grow up, not seeing them graduate from high school, that kind of thing. Like he's the one who really got fucked in this whole situation. We're just living the aftermath of it. So, I mean, talking about such a deep personal like devastating, sorrowful thing that happened to us, then having to say, well, here are the three top money things I think you should do. It feels, you know, it just, it's complicated, right? And so Mm -hmm. I feel like embracing the fact that it's complicated is maybe why anybody cared about the website to start with, or people might connect with the book or parts of the book, because it, it just is complicated. And so while so many things in life are out of our control, I think kind of project managing myself out of my grief. I also, you know, drank a lot for a while and got tattoos and kickboxed and learned how to surf. You know, I did all the other. And bought a motorcycle. Yeah, bought a motorcycle. I did the obligatory grief things as well as made checklists in my head and then in real life over and over again because. I think I really just needed to make sense of like how I'd gotten it so wrong. So I would never be that vulnerable again. And then I realized, oh shit, I have a whole new set of what ifs and questions and things to think about now that I'm a middle-aged single mom, right? And I have parents who live, you know, halfway across the country and as they get older, they'll need more help or something could happen to them right away. And realizing that it's me and my son and we're here and you know i have friends and family and part of a really wonderful blended family with my stepdaughter and her mother connie and so i have a lot more support than many people do but i also you know it's just me and if something happens to my parents jose isn't here to say all right i got to leave and go help out you know over there in the midwest for a week or two you've got the kid and the dog and the job and the thing like i don't have anyone to float that you know it's just it's just me i can't imagine what you've been through and i can say that i'm one of six kids all of whom are healthy functioning adults and when my mom was sick and passed away and as my dad gets older having a support group emotional and logistical support group that we all get to take turns doing what we can within the necessities and and obligations we have in our life has been a very, very positive experience. I mean, I can't imagine all the work that it would take to care for aging parents on one's own. And my wife is an only, so we, at some point, hopefully we'll have that, we'll, we'll be doing that. But I want to get back to what you said. You said something really interesting. You said that talking about Jose's death in the context of money was difficult or challenging because money has a dirty energy about it. And I think that's a really interesting phrase. If I got it right, did I get it right? Probably. I probably just made that up, but yes, let's go with yes. Is that, do you think that people's suspicions or distrust of money is one of the reasons 
they don't have their shit together because they feel like it's not worth their time or it's too scary or they shouldn't have to deal with it. Like that money is just a hassle and it only brings problems while at the same time it feeds your children and puts a roof over your family's head and educates them. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I think all of those things are true and we feel different versions or bursts of all of those things probably at different times. You mentioned Ron Lieber earlier and and when he and I had a chance to talk, he said something that stuck with me for years, which is, you know, when I asked him the same thing, like, why don't people do this stuff? And I don't know that any one person has the perfect answer for everybody, but he had shared with me that money is math in a lot of ways, but money's really about feelings. And we all have our childhood stuff or our present day stuff wrapped up in in our worries and our concerns and our anxieties and our hopes and our dreams. And often that gets jumbled up in one and money has, you know, all of money is options and money is freedom and money is, you know, education and money can help people get out of living in poverty. But it it's also, my experience has been it's, it's so complicated that there, there's guilt and greed and just yuckiness around it, like the, the disparity of wealth, the fact that some people have so much more than others. Like money is not an, a neutral thing, I think, in this, in this country, you know, in most places for so many of us. And so trying to figure out how I felt so vulnerable emotionally and personally and how not having money and bouncing checks in the hospital, like that's, that feels shameful and it was embarrassing and half the country would probably be in the same spot. So yeah. But I think that, I mean, one of the perhaps operating theories behind this show is to say, you know, if we really thought about what money represents to us, we could make better decisions around it. And so it seems to me like you're doing tremendous work that, you're helping people see through some of the, I might call it a myth. You you might call it a yuckiness of money that it just is what it is. Money is objective. It's our relation to it. That's subjective that, and what we want from it that makes it yucky. And during this crazy difficult time that people are coming to you as a resource, you're using this horrible event in your life to help people through their own horrible events. Like, it doesn't seem to me that it would be weird. It's like you're doing it, you're doing them this tremendous favor to help them get their heads around something that they don't understand because they've thought about it as yucky or they've thought about it as too big to get their hands around during the yeah. time when they were more in a better mental position to actually make preparations for these kinds of things. Well, thank you. That's my hope. Otherwise, I'm just telling embarrassing stories about myself. <laughs> anyone who'll listen, which I don't know. (laughs) You know, the reason why we're not better with our money is probably not logical, right? Like we know where the bank is. The spreadsheets are out there. You know, I'm not frankly saying anything new that a finance expert hasn't told me, but I do think talking about it differently in a way that people can say, oh God, yeah, me too is way more inviting and and you know maybe we'll help the 50% of Americans who aren't prepared. So it's working so far and maybe I'll 
write another book about more embarrassing things <laughs> that, <laughs> well, and bad choices well, I've made. <laughs> as I said, I don't want to gush too much about your book, but it, I think it's, it's got enormous practical value, but it's also extremely well-written and it is surprisingly funny in places. So I wish you tremendous luck in getting the word out further and to making the most of this work that you're doing, because I think it'll be of great benefit to a lot of people out there. So the name of the book is What Matters Most, The Get Your Shit Together Guide to Wills, Money, Insurance, and Life's What Ifs. The author is Chanel Reynolds, who has been our guest. Chanel, where else can people find you if you want them to find you? You can find me at chanelreynolds.com or uh, just.com. G-Y-S-T dot com. That's right. Thank awesome. you, Paul. Yeah, Chanel, thank thanks you. for your time today. I really appreciate it and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chanel, for that great interview. Thank you for your candor in that interview and in your book. I think it's a really great thing that you're using some of the worst days of your life to help other people have a little bit of respite during which may be the worst of theirs. So folks, even if you do have a yucky relationship with money, take the time to go to gist.com, G-Y-S-T.com, find their checklist of things you should be working on, applying for life insurance, disability insurance, or doing a simple will is no more difficult than applying for cable television or a cell phone plan. And you've done both of those things at some point in your life. So check out that stuff. But let's also remember that having your shit together as mature adults isn't just about finances, it's about your health. And I had an experience where I benefited from the death of a friend, and I wanna tell you about it real quick. A friend of mine died of a heart attack a few years ago, and I was scared to death, not just because I lost a friend, but because I I saw two young tr- children lose their dad. And that scared me to death because I had two young kids of my own. And I also just didn't want to die. So I was like, well, what precautions can I take? I've had my annual physicals. I feel great. I exercise a lot. I eat decently. But there's this thing called a calcium body scan that you can do that goes beyond the data that you have in a normal physical. And a lot of local hospitals subsidize these tests so that they're pretty cheap. I think for like 150 bucks, they'll scan your entire body and tell you how much calcium you have in the arteries around your heart. Well, you can hear the foreshadowing, I'm sure, folks. And what I found out in this test was that I was off the charts for the amount of calcium I had in my body. And for the past several years, I've now been seeing a cardiologist every 90 days. I'm on statins. They suck, but they're helping me stay alive. I'm eating better. We do EKGs and stress tests every so often to make sure I'm still in a good place. And I am. But the point is, you got to do these tests. If you haven't had a physical in a long time, sign up and get a physical today. Female friends, if you haven't had your mammogram in a while, it's time. Go sign up today. Fellas, go see Dr. Jellyfinger. It's not a great afternoon, but it doesn't mean anything weird, even if you enjoy it a little bit, all right? Just go find out. Get yourself checked out. Early detection buys you many more years on this planet. Get your shit together financially and medically. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, pass it to a friend. I hope you have a great day. Bye.